Hello, everybody, and welcome. You're listening to Talk Clean to Me. I'm your host, Joe Karen. And I'm Chloe Holzinger. Today, we are sitting down with David from Surge Hydro. David, welcome to the show. If you could take a second to please introduce yourself. Yeah, thank you so much, Joe and Chloe, for introducing me uh, and having me on. It's a a pleasure. But uh, as you said, my name is David Markley. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Surge Hydro, along with my business partner, Nicholas Cabral. Cool. And today, oh, I'm remembering for the first time to do this at the beginning, we are recording from Greentown Labs. Um, so we're here in the in the National Grid room, I guess. I don't know if I want to plug National Grid or not. But um, they're, one of, they're one of our favorite people to work with. Okay, too, then, so. all right, we're in the National yeah. Grid room. We're, doing, we're all in. Okay, cool. Thanks, National Grid, for sponsoring this room, but not, <laughs> a, but not our podcast. Although maybe, I don't know. Yet. We should get those guys on the phone. Right. Uh, we've been hearing a... Good things about it. Okay, cool. So lay it on us. What is Surge Hydro? So initially, Surge Hydro uh, was started back in 2013. Uh, My business partner and I, we were at Maine Maritime Academy. We were in a renewable energies class, and five dams were the topic of discussion, and those five dams were right down the road from the school. Uh, And so there was some talk about the school getting them and what was going to happen. The town had done some engineering reports, and so... Like good engineers, my business partner, another friend of ours and I went down and looked at the dams, uh, crunched some numbers, and then my business partner Nick did some fundraising, and we ended up acquiring the dams while we were still at Maine Maritime Academy. Cool. Uh, So every day after class, we would run down to Belfast, turn wrenches, we were getting contracts, doing relicensing, just really a crash course into dams 101. And so we started to look at the larger opportunity of the 80,000 non-powered dams and how could we come up with solution with what we know now about the process that could enable those dams to be cost-effectively turned into revenue-generating assets. And so we developed a new technology, a new way of electrifying these dams. And so it's a a modular system, so it's more cost-effective to install. It's less environmentally invasive. Uh, There's a bunch of other uh, operation and maintenance benefits, but... That's really how Surge Hydro was born, was from us stumbling, learning, developing these five smaller projects, and then there's got to be a better way to do this. And so that's how we got started. Cool. So if you could encapsulate your value proposition, well, what is it? Cost-effective modular design for electrifying non-powered dams. Interesting. Okay. Yep. So instead of tearing down the dams, which would be extremely expensive, um, and generally state governments have been shown to rather ignore them rather than tear them down, you're making them uh, really cost-effective um, as they currently stand. Right. With- and, and just to, without diving into the weeds about the, the process and everything like that, um, I think a lot of people don't know that there are 80,000 dams in the country right now that don't generate electricity. They're, they just exist. And now we're given the question, what do we do with them? Do we remove them so we can allow fish passage? Well, that's not cost effective. Or they've got so much sediment from all of the mills that used to be along the riverway. And if we were to release the sediment, then it would go and destroy all of the natural habitats that are downstream of it. So how do we retain it? How do we find funding to maintain these dams? There's um, big question marks around this whole industry. And Really, our, our value is that we can take these idle liabilities and turn them into revenue-generating assets. 
providing revenue for the towns, the owners, the different environmental agencies. And so it's, uh, we add value horizontally, but then we're a vertically integrated company, if that makes sense. So typically, do you guys own the dam itself? Is that how it works? And then, So, yeah, the initial uh, thought was that we were going to be a, a aggregator of all of these small dams, and it turned out that that was going to be a little too capital intensive. Um, so the model that we switched to is more of a, a leasing uh, program where we partner with the dam owners. We provide the licensing services, the engineering services, and our new technology to bring these dams online, essentially. And so that's uh, what I mean by vertically integrated, is that we kind of bring a turnkey solution to the dam owner. Can you walk us through that process of kind of that, it sounds like there was a little pivot there, right, from ownership of the dams to this other model you're working with now. How, what was that exploration process like? Uh, so one, one thing as a, a business developer is you always have to be mindful of how you're going to get to the next milestone, right? And so if you put the blinders on and we were just looking at those five dams that we own, it's like, okay, we raised the capital, we've developed these, we've got a power purchase agreement, blah, blah, blah. Now we have to wait seven years for these to pay themselves off. We have to go do another capital raise. We have to go get five more dams. We have to develop those. And we have to get money to float, you know, all of the payments that we have on our loan. And it's like, okay, hold on, stop. Like, this is not, this is going to take way too long. It's not going to be scalable. And so just doing like kind of the basic financial model for that. Um, and that was like one of the very first things that we came to, I mean, before we even launched the company uh, in full, it was like, okay, we need to have a different model if this is going to work. And so the the leasing option, and uh, I think a lot of people who may or may not have experience with municipalities would tell us to steer clear from them, but the way that our model is such that working with municipalities is actually like our target market. And so they're generally the uh, valley of death. It takes, you know, two years to get a contract with them. They're very slow. It's, it has less to do about the business. But for us, they have the ability to bond for those projects. And so it, it, it's kind of a two birds with one stone. And since we already have a revenue stream from the projects we already own, we can survive that two-year negotiating process. Um, so, yeah, a unique answer for a unique situation is, is kind of the long of the short. And then that lets you tailor whatever solution you have to the specific municipality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and so another reason why these dams haven't been developed is that each one's required an individual solution. And so they've got different flow rates, they've got different heights, they've got different you know, abilities to generate vast different amounts of power. Um, and so all the engineering, everything that goes into that is very different. And when you start doing it at a small scale, you get the inverse scale of a economy, essentially. And so all the small projects don't work because all the overhead uh, multiplies. And so what we've done over the past three years we've really focused on streamlining a lot of those processes and then streamlining the business model and kind of how we attack all of these dams uh, unilaterally, you know, across the country. But. Cool. So you, you talked about um, a type of analysis that we haven't talked about on this podcast yet, which is understanding if your business model is scalable, mm. right? Which is an important thing to figure out and something that potential investors care a whole lot about making sure that you thought through. How did you... Who taught you to do that analysis? How did you feel comfortable in that analysis? What was that process like? So I think key to answering that, that question is what type of business do you want to create? And there, there's really no right or wrong answer. It's just where, 
how, how do you want to move your business forward? And if you want to follow the typical, you know, seed funding, funding fan, friends and family round, and then go into an angel investment situation, and then from angel go to series A, and then from, you know, series A probably get some VCs in, on board, you need to understand what they're looking for. And short rule of thumb is most of them are looking for 10 and 10, 10 times their money in 10 years. Obviously different industries differ, but that's kind of what you need to be thinking about. And so as you build, as you're an entrepreneur and you're building your business model and you're thinking about what can I do to exponentially grow my business, you need to be able to scale. And that, and that's kind of the buzzword for how do I go from one MVP with five people, and then I can serve a hundred people with the same product without having to get another, you know, five people for every single product that I roll out. And so those types of mechanisms, how do you keep capital costs down? How do you keep overhead down? Those are all the things that you need to be thinking about in your long-term planning so that when you approach an investor, you can tell them exactly how you're going to make 10 times their money in 10 years. And it's a viable path. You've got the team to do it. Um, so yeah, these are all pretty standard things. And then to speak about who really taught us, uh, I mean, uh, we've had a, a fantastic support system, ecosystem, for lack of a better term, uh, with Cleantech Open. Uh, we're a mass challenge company as well. Uh, but the greater Boston ecosystem, people just helping the next generation think about things the right way is, is really the best way I've heard it explained. Um, people from MIT are, are on our advisory board, Harvard Business School. I mean, we've got, uh, just because of Mass Challenge and Clean Tech Open, those have opened the doors to people helping us come up with solutions to these challenges. Cool. Um, you go. Okay, cool. So I really like when you talked about the process of the, the, the company, right? You were in this class, you, you crunched some numbers, and there was a company. I, I feel like there's some steps missing, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 so I'm curious about some of that, that nitty-gritty, like, and, and the more personal side of it, too. Was it difficult for you to think about this risk, right, or mm. jump off or find people who are willing to take that risk with you? Yeah, so great question. The realities of it are that all three of us who were talking about the enterprise collectively, we didn't have any business experience at all. <laughs> we took a complete engineering approach to this. We thought that we were going to be smarter than everybody else. We saw the opportunity that nobody else did. Uh, and the reality of it was is that uh, my business partner, Nicholas Cabral, and then our other friend who also happens to be Nick Burner, so the story can get pretty confusing at times, but uh, Nick and Nick decided to take the leap of faith um, initially, and I didn't go in on the dams the first go around. And so uh, we finished our degrees. I, I helped them, you know, work on a few uh, parts of the project, kind of got a high level understanding of everything that was going on. But uh, personally, there was a, a lot of questions around the town, the political kind of environment that I didn't have solved for myself. And so I, I kind of took a, a back seat initially and uh, watched and learned with them. And then I went to work for uh, Shell, a, a contracted company by Shell down in the Gulf of Mexico for a few years, really got some more in-depth hands-on experience, continued to follow up with the dams when Nick and Nick weren't there because they were also shipping at the same time. I would go up and check on them, take care of them. Um, got, got a little <laughs> more involved with the town, kind of the socio-political uh, environment that they were operating in. And then 
personally, I, I took an interest in just exploring what else was out there, who people were talking to, who was talking about developing these non-powered dams, where the focus in the industry was. And for me, when we started Search Hydro, it really seemed like right place, right time, in for several other reasons, but the regulatory environment changed. So licensing dams went from a five-year process to a one-year process. Mm -hmm. The DOE created several funding opportunities for doing exactly what we're doing. So that got us in touch with some people at the DOE, program managers, talking to them about what they're looking for, where they're, you know. So once we had more checks in the box, for me, I felt much more comfortable taking that leap of faith with them because mm-hmm. I like an investor, right? You, you, you're as an entrepreneur, you should be looking at things as an investor because that's ultimately who you're trying to sell your business to or how you're trying to scale is that what do, what question mark do I need answered before I can reach the next milestone? How much money do I need to get there? What, you know, what, it, what would be a, a potential barrier? What's the risk? And so personally, I felt that a lot of those risks had been mitigated or at least the tides had turned where I felt comfortable uh, getting involved with, with this project. And so when we started Search Hydro, uh, we knew the, the next you know, question marks that we needed to answer. And so we just kind of started following that logical path. Cool. Yeah, so there, that's uh, more of the intimate detail. But Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's really cool. And Government Baker is pretty pro-hydropower as well. Are right. you working on with his office and trying to do more in Massachusetts, or are you mostly just focused on Maine first and then branching out from there? Yeah, and why? Uh, Both great questions, Uh, Maine being kind of our starting point. And so as we were developing those five dams, we developed the relationships at the Federal Energy Regulatory Committee, and then all of the state entities were familiar with the licensing process. We know who all the policy makers are, and then furthermore, we know the stakeholders as well. And so to throw that experience out the door and completely start over in Massachusetts would be, you know, two steps forward, eight steps back. I mean, just a completely, you know, a blank slate. And so we're really focusing on developing out the technology and proving the model in Maine because we, we have that familiarity. We have met with several of, of Governor Baker's different kind of representatives and people in the state who are very interested in what we're doing. Uh, but we're, our focus is in Maine currently. So how is that like commuting between Boston and Maine pretty regularly? <laughs> yeah, so I gave a talk in Maine. Honestly, the most actionable insight that I think that I could give to anybody is buy a car that is extremely fuel efficient because I've put all of just under, I think I just crested 19.5, so 19,500 miles in the last like five months on my vehicle. So for, I mean, it's going to be 20,000 miles in half a year. So I'm on track to do 40,000 this year alone. So that's what it's like. I live in my car essentially. <laughs> what, uh, what do you do in the car to stay sane on those four hour, four and a half hour trips? Uh, so initially it was listen to pop radio and that <laughs> lasted for like the first thousand miles that I would have gone insane and by the end of I that. pretty I think I pretty much know the words to every single <laughs> hit oh right that now. sounds painful and, sing, <laughs> and I, if I didn't put it at the beginning of the show we asked David to sing us a song <laughs> it sounds like you could have had some of these pop lyrics ready to go uh another the next time I'm on the show I'll come ready with a song <laughs> to sing. but um so after that it Lots and lots of podcasts. NPR, great to listen to uh, when you're stuck on, you know, 95 in the hour-long commute that I have to get 20 minutes outside of the city. But um, 
No hard feelings. Yeah, a lot, lots of podcasts. Uh, Peter Diamandis with Exponential Technology. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of thought leaders in what a whatever industry you're in, and b just ways to think about your business, and it it just every data point helps. Yeah. It all just adds to strategic thinking, planning. You know where where best to spend your time because I think. At the crux of it, that's what being an entrepreneur really is, is that you have a million and one opportunities, you have 10,000 roads, and I know this. everybody gives this advice, but it, it really comes down to you only have a limited amount of decision-making capacity within a day. You better spend your time making the right decisions. You know, Don't spend all day deciding where to go to lunch. Decide, you know, spend all day deciding who your first hire is going to be and how you're going to grade that person and how you're going to bring them online. And so, anyways. Cool. You and Nick are, are good friends. Do you have any suggestions for working, starting a business with friends? Like, Oh, man. <sighs> you need to... A little background, uh, Nick and I have been best friends since we were in sixth grade, since I moved to the Northeast, uh, middle school, high school, we were on different sports teams together, so we've competed together, we've failed together, we both went to Maine Maritime Academy together, so I mean, there's like a long history, we were on the sailing team, we won a national sailing championship, um, I mean, there's a, a long history of tackling problems, either failing, succeeding, and how the response of that is. It's a lot cleaner if you don't have that experience with somebody when you tackle a problem to say, this isn't why it's work. Like, this is where the, the hiccup is in the system. We need to replace you or you need to figure it out. That's a much easier conversation to have than like with your childhood buddy who like you might not have started a company with before. And, you know, so my, my advice without knowing who I'm talking to, don't start a company with your best friend. <laughs> However, I will say if you have a long history with that person. And just like starting a business, if you have a history of starting things and failing or pivoting and, and just knowing that, you know, 12 years later that we're still getting together and hanging out and having a good time. Um, because first and foremost, we don't want to lose our friendship like that. That is the utmost priority. And so whether it means one of us leaves the business or we have to sell it to maintain the friendship, um, I'm sure our investors don't want to hear that. But you know, that like that, that for us, the first and foremost is, is the friendship and we're both willing to step away or change positions or change roles for the business and our friendship to succeed. Not to turn this into an even long, long, longer winded answer, but um, a piece of advice. And I heard this story just a couple days ago, which I thought was really funny is uh, my father actually sat me down before we started the company. And he said, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to go into this with the mindset that you're going to do 75% of the work right off the bat. Just, just recognize that you're doing 75% of the work in this two person team. It's like, okay, wow. Yeah. I really took that to heart. After we won clean tech open, my dad told me that the exact same day he sat Nick down and also said, what you need to understand is you're doing 75% of the work on this team here. And so I think that's an attitude that we've carried forward is that when you're thinking about I need to do 75% of the work and something pops up and you're in the middle. I mean, this happens to everyone in every job. You're in the middle of something, you're frazzled, all of a sudden a new deadline pops up. Now you're frustrated because you weren't expecting it or, I mean, things just happen. And when you have that 75% attitude, you don't call the next person, the next, you know, cubicle over. You don't call the person below you to take care of it. 
you get your project done and then you get the next thing done and then you get the next thing done. And, and when you have that mentality moving through this process, A, things don't slip through the cracks. And I think that's what kills a lot of teams is that, you, you know, when you have the 75%, there's, there's a lot of times where Nick and I will actually find that we're both working on the same thing and then we both bring a whole different perspective to it and then we're able to collaborate as opposed to having like, dude, why didn't you take care of that? And so, um, yeah, just a, a tip of wisdom, I suppose, for people yeah. trying to start. No, I like that. Setting expectations accordingly is always very important. Yeah. And yeah. I know I was on the high school sailing team as well. Oh, nice. Um, and I was a crew. Um, I was crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sailed 420s and... I'm a, I was a little big for 420s, but I have <laughs> a lot of painful memories in those boats. So may or may not still have some scars to prove it. Right. Um, but I know me and my skipper, the guy I sailed with every day for two, four days a week, four or five, six days a week for two years, Yeah. we would have our on-the-water relationship, mm-hmm. and we would have our off-the-water friendship. Yeah, absolutely. And it was very different. Um and on the water, we would both yell at each other pretty much constantly. Um, and off the water, he'd be like over at my house watching a movie. Like I, I love how we're talking about sailing. Like there's people who sail for enjoyment, and they like love you know the scenery and getting the fresh air and being out there. And then there's like those of us that have raced, and not that <laughs> not that one idea is better or another. But whenever I think of sailing, I just think of like people screaming at each other. <laughs> Everyone's got their hair on fire all the time, you know. Even when you're in first, people are still disgruntled about you right, know. Right, because you got to worry about like who exactly. your teammates are and yeah. where they're going. Yep. So. Did you feel like that prepared you for entrepreneurship, for uh, running a company? Uh, so what I will say it prepared me for was don't sweat the little things. I mean, stuff goes wrong on the race course. All the, I mean, I've literally had my entire mast come down <laughs> in a race before, and it's like, well... <laughs> we're just going to put it back up and get back into the race and move on. There's like, only there, so much you can do. Yeah, there's no, there's no reason to you know, just blow up. And so I will say it, it does give you that uh, level-headedness when you approach things. Like, you know, I, I, could, I could list numerous things that have just gone wrong and it hits you like a, a freight truck and you're just like, okay, uh, well, let's fix that and <laughs> see what we can do, you know, next. I mean, there's, there's not, a, yeah, you kind of have to have uh, a levity, a lightness about you when, when you go through sailing and being an entrepreneur. And what you were saying about not having an ego in a friendship and business as well. Yeah. You you just really can't. Like, there's there's so much going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. You can't handle, like, what are my actual, what do I actually need to do here to not capsize the boat? Yeah, exactly. Um, whether the boat is your company or, like, a literal boat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. I'm glad we could bring sailing so fruitfully into the conversation. I miss it. I need, yeah. to, I need to go do it more. <laughs> um, do you have anything you're but um, to ask? You can think. I have one. All right. Well, I'll ask while you look. Uh, what What's your biggest challenge right now as a company? I'd say that the most important thing across all companies is just making sure you have the right team in place that can handle any challenges. Because as we were just talking about, everything might look good right now moving forward, but your mast can come down without a set. You, you can drop the tiller. You know, I mean, it, 
everything can go wrong in a moment's notice. And so having a team that can, you know, pull the lines back together, step the mast and, and keep sailing on, on course is by far the utmost importance. And I think as we're looking into the future and seeing uh, the projection of where we want to be and how we're you know, progressing right now, getting that team together is, is probably where we're spending a lot of our time and effort right now. Specifically for us, uh, we've done a lot of business development, um, looked at the, the pieces that we needed for this to be a scalable company to, to make it, you know, make this model work. How, how do we solve the jigsaw puzzle? And so in figuring that out, uh, we've, we've had partnerships and, you know, conversations, Central Main Power, National Grid, GE Ventures. We, we've talked to an outreach to these companies, seen what they're looking at, what their needs are, and then how do we build something that, that fits the middle. And so we've done a lot of work uh, kind of getting the team ready. And so uh, I know the listeners can't see my hands, but on the left side of the timeline, it's kind of pre-technology, pre-product, making sure everything's in place. And then we've spent a, the last almost year making sure that what we're building is meeting and serving the needs of people. And it's known as product market fit, aha, uh -huh, right? And so we've spent the last year really honing in on making sure that we're building something that A, works, and, and meets all of the technical uh, specs, but B, that people want to buy, like things that will, they will pay for, right? And then we've done a lot of uh, making sure that the foundation is ready to go for one that, that takes off. So uh, biggest question mark right now is building out the technology. And so that's, that's where we're headed. Cool. Yeah. And uh, just on team, like I can't personally stress enough, like the importance of a good team. Right. And this is yeah. something investors care a lot about mm -hmm. because there's uh, something I heard early on on my journey being an entrepreneur. I hope I haven't said this on the show before, but uh, that's just going to keep happening more and more, I guess, um, which is, um, you know, a bad team can fail with a good product and a good team can succeed with a bad product. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think it's the, the team's ability to rework the problem. Exactly. And, and and I don't think there's a secret sauce or a special formula to team building. Other, I, there's a lot of research and a lot of science that would suggest that there is a good and a bad way, but then there's always these anomalies. And I mean, as entrepreneurs, I think we're really cognitive of the fact that one in 10 succeed and we try and uh, learn and, and adapt based upon the successes that have emerged. But at the end of the day, it's I think it comes down to flexibility within your 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 core group um, and I, trust. Yeah, well, and, and trust is huge. I mean, and and then it goes back to setting expectations. I mean, everybody you know wants to say that they can roll their product off the shelf in six months and we'll be a unicorn and all of a sudden billion dollar valuations and everybody's moving to Maui, right, or wherever you want to go to. Um, and when that doesn't happen and you don't get your product right the first time or the second time or the 10th time, and it takes five years because you had to do this whole policy investigation and, oh, that's how this system works and this is why we needed these stakeholders that we thought we could just ignore. Okay, this all makes sense now. So when people come to the realization that like, oh my God, I'm going without a salary for now two years, three years, four years, this doesn't work for me, I can't handle this and hopefully they don't self-implode and bring the whole company down with them, right? They, they make it known, have a conversation, have those difficult talks. All of those things are vital to your company's success. Absolutely. So. Cool. I think it's story time. Yeah. All right. So one of the questions that we like to ask is to see if you have had a key formative experiences in 
uh, as an entrepreneur. So basically your most frustrating moment doing this or and your best moment doing mm. this. Man. Take your time. We're willing to wait. Yeah. There, hmm. You know, I can't, I can't narrow down off the top of my head any particular thing that forced me to think that, you know, the whole ship was in trouble. But I remember very early on with a lot of the early learning that we were doing and, and checking off a lot of those uh, boxes and erasing the question marks, you know, when originally it was like, okay, yeah, I think we can reach this milestone in a year. And then you meet with the policyholders and you realize that this is the reason why the system hasn't adapted or there isn't a mechanism in place. And so you're like, okay, well, to actually author that white paper and then get the policy to change, that's going to probably take another year or two. And so your one-year goal is now a three-year goal. And then you're looking at fundraising and financing. And you think that because you've got a good story and you've had a track record and you have, you know, minimal revenue, but you have a vision and you can articulate your story well. No, fundraising is still going to take six months to a year. And so now it's a five-year goal. And then you, you plot your timeline out for development of, you know, I mean, it, those early on um, coming to those harsh truths, being faced with those and feeling as if the entire thing was crumbling around you, like all of the buildings were falling <laughs> onto your face and you were just sinking. And no matter, you know, how much work you did or how hard you tried, it, it just didn't matter because it was going to be five years out and I can't go without a salary for five years. And so there's no way we could possibly do this and screw it. We're done. Close up shop, right? And then you, you know, get that grant that you put in for that gets you another five months of life. And then you find another opportunity pops up and you get that one introduction. And that one guy knows somebody over at National Grid and now you're pitching in front of, you know, their economic development team and they're super excited about what you're doing. And so they give you that letter of intent that you were looking for. And so to combat all of those times where you're faced with the harsh realities of it, this is impossible. Those setting those those milestones and having those points of validation along the way is what has kept me sane, right? <laughs> I mean, without without any of that, it should be a pretty good indication that you're probably not building anything that you should be building. Like it might be the coolest product widget thing that you've ever thought of, and it, it's going to somehow ch change humanity. But if nobody else can understand it or see it or verify it, or nobody else is willing to pay for it. You really just have a cool thing. It's not it's not something that you can build a business on, right? And so I think yeah, the combination of all of the little victories. I mean, I I remember just getting accepted uh Nick and I were looking at it and and we knew we needed somebody with some more business experience on our team and we weren't quite sure how to reach out in the main ecosystem to get the right people on our team. And we heard about Mass Challenge while I was living down here in Boston. And there was this other thing that we heard about through Clean Tech Open. And so we applied to both of those programs and on a complete whim. I mean, we're, we're both engineers. We like just thought of like, we've got this really cool idea. Please help us make this into a business, you know? And uh, when we heard back from Mass Challenge that we had made it into the program, wow. it was like, holy smokes. This, this might actually have legs. Like, this could be a real thing. And so that idea of validation. And then the next day, we got a call from Cleantech Open. And they said, yeah, we want you to be a part of our program as well. 
And so now Nick and I are looking at each other. I was like, can we even do both? Like, <laughs> has anyone ever done this before? Who do we call? Do we know anybody that's done both? Like, oh, get everyone on the line. And so I, I, we called the few mentors and like kind of the advisory board that we had established then. And they're like, and I'll never forget um, a good friend of ours, Paul Barrett from Clean Tech oh, yeah. Open, got him on the phone. It's like, Paul, I like, can can we do both? Like, which one should we do? How do we pick? And he was like, David. This is the moment where you grab the brass and you grab it with both hands, like all in, man. You got to go for it. And I was like, okay, we're doing it. And, and so that was, for me, one moment that stands out as like the beginning of this wild ride that has like been the last year. Um, and yeah, there's been more moments like that than I, I can remember. But it's been, yeah, it's been the ultimate emotional sine wave for me it's like i've seen extreme highs and it's what's allowed me to know like extreme lows and just back and forth so you know you're an engineer when you don't say emotional roller coaster you say emotional well, sine wave. wave yeah right right <laughs> that's right cool so tell us about uh, clean tech open mass challenge and maybe other resources in this ecosystem that have been most important to you and what parts of those programs have been most important for you man uh so both have unbelievable visibility and it's almost that that validation that I'm talking about it almost like they elevate your game and everybody else's game around you I mean uh, I, I forget I think it was might have been John Hawthorne or, or somebody at the mass challenge team who said it was more difficult to get into mass challenge than this year than it was to get into Harvard I mean the acceptance rate was that low and so you're like oh wow holy smokes like we're really like for two guys who were sitting on some dams a couple weeks ago, like this is a thing, like wow, like we're here. And so it, it really forced us to step our game up and then being part of that ecosystem and things like Greentown Labs and the, the I think the true value is that you're not at your house sitting on your couch and you're like, man, I don't need to do laptop work today, I can just watch TV or something like that, right? It's like, it's like everybody else is, they're going for it, they're hungry, everyone's making calls, they're making connections you come up with an HR problem, you spin around, and the people who are sitting behind you, oh yeah, no, I just hired this guy. Like, oh yeah, you guys need company insurance? Like, yeah, no, don't go with that firm. They like totally were gonna overcharge us. These guys know what's up. And so having that ability to quickly solve all of the small problems that you don't need to spend immense amount of time on, and then also to see how hungry everybody is. I mean, like the people who are in these programs Everyone's there to win. Don't let, don't let them fool you. And, and I, both programs will say it's not about the money, this, that, and the other. Like, for some companies, including ours, $100,000 can have a huge impact on where you're going. And it, it can make or break some of these companies, right? It's that, it's that difference between being able to pay, you know, your staff for the next three months while you get to the next milestone or close up shop. I mean, so, yeah, every, everyone is just unbelievably engaged. Everyone's there to be helpful. Some of the smartest and brightest people I've ever met. And then the same thing goes just for Boston at large. I mean, going to, you know, different events, uh, either at MIT or, you know, Harvard or, or any of these, you know, larger kind of forums that we can tap just being here in Boston has been unbelievably useful. It's been amazing. Um, and I don't remember the rest of your question, but the ecosystem has, is great. It's awesome. <laughs> no, you nailed it. Cool. That's that's very very good insight. I have my last question ready to go. I don't know if you. I have, have one more. Okay. Um, so where do you see your company going from here? What are the next steps for you? You mentioned you're moving into Autodesk, maybe. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yeah, hopefully. Um, but in terms of business development and R and D, what are your specific next challenges? So, 
We, uh, as I alluded to, uh, there's a DOE kind of funding initiative out there called Hydronext. And for those of you who are trying to start companies in kind of the government grant space, um, I would offer that it's a whole nother business development tackle in and of itself. It's not just, yeah, let's just shoot them a grant and see what happens. I mean, like, like everything, if you have the relationships and you have a name that's familiar to somebody that's at the program, I mean, the people who are running, who are the program managers who decide who gets funded and who don't, I mean, they're just people too, right? And, and so if you can get in front of those, you can go to the conferences, you can go to the workshops, you can go to whatever you need to, to tip the scale. So it's like, oh yeah, Search Hydro, we know these guys. Oh, they're working with, oh yeah, that's right. We funded that company too. And they provided great work that we should, could show to our bosses to show that we're really making an impact here, right? And so... Being able to tip that scale, another business development challenge, something that we've put uh, a lot of time and effort into kind of over the last six months. Kind of what I was talking about earlier is we have the partnerships, and so we've presented them uh, kind of with the project pro forma for what this is going to get technical, but what the LCOE of our technology is, what the installed cost per kilowatt is, what I mean, kind of all of the things that these projects look at. We've presented those to uh, project investors, and they said, yes, if you can make this work, we're in. And we've presented it to different uh, off-takers, so municipalities, people who own it, and they said, yeah, if you can make this work, we're all in. And so we have kind of the bookends established, and now it's just about de-risking the technology so that we can create the value that we've estimated. That's kind of the next year, and then beyond that, we're going to move into more of a project development space. So Cool. Awesome. So I wonder where your passion for this project comes from. What what drives you to take these risks? What what gets you up and going and jazzed up to do this stuff? So really big things that move and achieve whatever they're meant to achieve has have always been a super interest in mine, whether it's, you know, planes, trains, gas turbines, uh, steam turbines. I mean, I, I worked on a, an oil tanker that had a 12-story engine room and the boilers were six stories tall. And like, I mean, it, just unbelievable like pieces of machinery. And like, I, I really feel like that's the backbone to what allows us to do what we do. And so when there was an opportunity to get involved with that infrastructure and what I call the veins of America for the most part, because without it, we don't get to have all of these kind of modern uh, amenities that we've grown accustomed to. And so that was very inspirational. And then as we transitioned and are transitioning to kind of more of a clean energy economy, I think now is the time to get involved. Uh, there's plenty of great examples about disruptive technology where you hear a lot about them, they get a bunch of press, and then they go dark for like five years. And then all of a sudden, like 10 startups come out of it, and you've got Facebook and this, that, and the other. Like MySpace was huge, right? Like everybody knew about MySpace, and then it like kind of went away, and like nobody really talked about social media that much. And then Facebook, and it's methodical, like slow approach of like getting into the Ivy League colleges first, and then growing from there. And then now it's, you know, the next, you know, the largest company, social media, advertising, everything is just taken off from then. So I think we're seeing the same thing in clean energy and we're seeing it in solar panels, we're seeing it in wind, and we haven't quite heard about it in hydro yet. And so that's that's why we're excited. Cool. Great. Anything else, Chloe? No, I think I'm good. All right. Take it away. 
All right. Well, thank you, David, for joining us today. Um, and thank you, everybody, for listening. In the show notes, you will find more, uh, more information on Surge Hydro and David and Nicholas. And if you would like to support the show, please tell a friend. Tweet at us at TalkCleanPod. Um, also, follow us on Instagram, same handle, TalkCleanPod. And visit our website at TalkCleanPodcast.com. Um, and in the future, please give us a review on iTunes, or maybe at this point it won't be the future. Maybe it'll be already oh, past. Yeah. yeah, it could be past by the time um, this is up. I bet it will be. Yeah, we're aiming to be on iTunes by Christmas, so if this is airing past Christmas, please check us out on iTunes. Um, download the show, give us a five-star review. Um, and if you do give us a five-star review, uh, the challenge for this one will be, ooh, so it'll be January. So... Um, give us a cold weather dare, and we will <laughs> we will try. Yeah. All right. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe will try at least. All right. Yeah. So a cold weather dare, something ridiculous to do in the cold. Yeah. And we will do it, and you can see it on Instagram. Me being cold and upset, and then, <laughs> or Joe filming while, uh, or and then I me being warm by a fire with hot cocoa, <laughs> probably. But anyway, yeah, the five stars really helps visibility. Really helps us out a lot. Um, so if you're enjoying the show, please go and do that, and uh, and help us out. And then uh, David, did you have any um, plugs you wanted to make? Anything you want people to know? Um, things come up for you guys, team members. Yeah. So I. This, if this airs in January, uh, we're heading out to Cleantech Open, the national uh, mm, pitch competition in yeah. February, and I think the, your last guest probably made a plug for that as well. <laughs> but uh, support us. Stay tuned. Hopefully we've got good news returning from California February 10th or so. Uh, you can check out our website at surgehydro.com. And then if you have any interest in following up with me, you can email me at david.markley at surgehydro.com. Sweet. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. We really need to come out with a cool outro. I, I, we've forgotten to do that. You know, like stay yeah. clean or like be green or something. You know, one of those. Oh, but I don't want to be too tacky. Just finish it with no, that. I, lo- I love this. <laughs> just, fin- just finish it with your like, we still need to come up with a good one.